Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. This is episode 55, State of the Nations, number 4, 1725. Thanks for listening in. So last time out, we finally closed the door on the life and times of Peter the Great. This week, it's State of the Nation time, but today, instead of looking at Russia, well, apart from a tiny bit at the beginning, we'll be spending most of the episode covering what was going on first with Russia's neighbours, then in the rest of Europe, and finally across the rest of the world, at the end of the first quarter of the 18th century. And that's why this particular episode is called State of the Nations. Clever stuff, eh? And just for a bit of context, there have been three previous episodes in this series. Episode 10, which looked at Kievan Rus, up to 1015. Episode 28, which looked at Kievan Rus and Moscow, or Muscovy, between 1015 and 1505. And episode 45, which covered Muscovy and Russia between 1505 and 1689. And you'll have noticed that the gap between each of the State of the Nation episodes is getting smaller. Nearly 500 years between the first and the second, almost 200 years between the second and the third, and only 36 years between the last one and this one. And that gap is decreasing, firstly because the nearer we get to the present day, so much more of what happened is known and documented. And then secondly, the number of interactions between Russia and the rest of Europe, and, in the not-too-distant future, the world, is increasing. Anyway, as fascinating as that all is, let's crack on and do some actual history. 
Okay, and we'll start with that very brief reminder of what's been going on in Russia for the past 36 years. And what's been going on in Russia for the past 36 years is the Peter the Great show, which covered everything to do with Peter the Great and starred Peter the Great. Well, that's not totally true, but it did kind of feel like it. Anyway, and as we know, Russia had actually undergone a kind of 36-year-long cultural revolution. It's now an empire. Well, that's questionable. And is soon to have its first of many, well, four, empresses occupying the top job. The Great Northern War was over, and Russia had a Baltic fleet centred on its new capital, St. Petersburg. Finland, temporarily, and the Baltic provinces were now in Russian hands, as were, again temporarily, some of the northern Persian provinces. Russia was safe and secure, more Western in outlook, and for the time being had no external enemies or internal strife to deal with. And on the home front, basically anything that could have been reformed had either been changed, adjusted, got rid of, or moved. For the vast majority of the Russian people, though, life was pretty much as it had been back in 1689, just with more taxes and less freedoms. And that's taxes, T-A-X-E-S, not taxes, T-A-X-I-S. OK, so that's the long and short of it in Russia. Now let's take a look at its neighbours and we'll start down in the south with the Ottoman Empire. So back in 1699, the Ottomans had lost the Great Turkish War to the Holy League and with the Treaty of Karlovitz had surrendered a significant chunk of territory to Habsburg, Austria and Poland and Venice. Their next military involvement came in the aftermath of the Battle of Poltava when they defeated Russian forces during the Pruth River campaign of 1710-11. And here they regained the port of Azov and, if you remember, almost captured the Tsar and his wife. Between 1714 and 1718, the Turks attempted to claw back some of their lost Balkan territories from the Venetian Republic and Austria, with mixed success, and had then turned their attention eastwards and had gained modern-day Iraq from the terminally declining Persian Safavid Empire. For the Ottomans, the period between 1718 and 1730 came to be known as the Tulip Period, or the Tulip Era, and was, in general, a time of peace and prosperity throughout the empire. It was also notable for the Tulip Craze, where members of the Ottoman elite became obsessed with the growing and displaying of the most ornate and colourful specimens. But the Turks weren't the first to have gone through a Tulip Craze, as we'll soon see. It wasn't all peace, love and flowers, though. In 1718, Istanbul experienced a serious fire, and in 1719, over 4,000 people were killed in an earthquake that affected the capital and several surrounding towns. The man in charge of the Turkish state between 1703 and 1730 was Sultan Ahmed III, and his main claim to fame was that of all the Ottoman sultans, apparently, he had the largest family, 21 consorts, 21 sons, 
and 36 daughters, and you can add the words at least after each of those figures. Okay, moving eastwards, we have Persia, which in 1725 was still just about ruled by the Safavid dynasty. Safavid Persia had recently lost some of its western and northern territories to both the Ottomans and the Russians, and in the east was under threat from Mughal India, the Afghans and the Uzbeks. However, the provinces taken by the Russians had proved to be difficult, or would prove to be difficult and costly, for St. Petersburg to govern, and by 1735, all of these territories would have been handed back to Persia in return for favourable trade deals. Okay, continuing eastwards, we come to the remote steppe lands and mountains, today's Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, that were inhabited by the Kazakhs, the Kalmyks, the Zungars, the Kievans, who Russia had disastrously attempted to conquer back in 1717, and various other Turkic-speaking tribes. And then even further to the east, we come to Qing or Manchu China. Now the Qing, whose original homeland was present-day Manchuria, in the far northeast of China, had wrested power from the Ming in the mid-17th century, and had spent the past 75 years consolidating their position via the efforts, in the main, of the third and fourth rulers of the dynasty, the Kangxi Emperor, who was on the throne for nearly 62 years, between 1661 and 1722, and his son, the Yongzhen Emperor, who would be in charge up until 1735. However, the Ming would reach their cultural and dynastic zenith during the reign of the fifth ruler, grandson of the third and son of the fourth, the Chen Lung Emperor, who would be in charge from 1735 until 1796, when he would abdicate, so that his reign ended up being just slightly shorter than his grandfather's, which I think was a classy touch. For reasons mainly due to the geography, climate and the extremely low population density of the border regions, the Russians and Chinese would have very little to do with one another during the 18th century, apart from the old treaty or agreement, where the frontier would be nudged around a little and the maps would then be redrawn. OK, let's swing back all the way across to Russia's west and take a look at its northern and western neighbours. And we'll start with our old friend, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Now, the Commonwealth had been one of the winners of the Great Northern War, but by 1725 its influence was continuing to wane, and its status as an independent ent entity was under threat, mainly because its system of elective monarchy meant that members of other European dynasties could, and did, end up running things. The Commonwealth currently had a Saxon king. Yes, Augustus II or the Strong was still in charge, but he spent most of his time in Saxony, and his lands were surrounded by foreign powers, Russia, Prussia and Habsburg-Austria, who were all very much on the up and sniffing around for more territory. And in fact, these three would, later in the 18th century, club together and then bit by bit carve up the Commonwealth so that by 1795 it would cease to exist. However, during the time that it had left, the Commonwealth would continue to be, well, by the standards of the age, 
forward-thinking, liberal and tolerant. And talking of forward-thinking, liberal and tolerant, let's now look at how Sweden was faring in 1725. Well, after coming out on the losing side of the Great Northern War, Sweden was adapting pretty well as it goes to life in the slow lane. As epitomised by its current king, Frederick I, who'd married Charles XII's sister, and not Charles XII's daughter, as I stated a couple of episodes ago, Ulrika Eleonora, back in 1714, and who, for most of the rest of his life, succeeded in his aim of doing anything remotely noteworthy, apart from establishing the first Swedish-speaking theatre. The man in charge of Prussia in 1725 would prove to be the exact opposite of the Swedish king. King Frederick William I, who'd been at the helm since 1713, was famed for his simple, frugal and austere lifestyle. He would be the king for 27 years, and during that time he never started a war, and he also made sure that the Prussian treasury was soundly managed. Plus he reformed the army and the taxation system, and also built a number of schools and hospitals. But he micromanaged everything, and had a notoriously short temper. He would often physically attack servants, and even his own children, and his relationship with his eldest son, yep, you've guessed it, Frederick, the future Frederick the Great no less, was fraught, to say the least. He was faithful to his wife, uh, Sophia Dorothea, the daughter of George I of Great Britain, and just double-checking here, yes, daughter, not sister, and together they had 14 children, although the marriage could not in any way be described as happy. Oh, and one last thing. For some reason, Frederick William absolutely detested France, and the mere mention of the words France or French would cause him to fly into an apoplectic rage. France! There, I've mentioned it. Through the policies and presence of Louis XIV, had dominated Europe politically and militarily throughout most of the 17th century. However, in 1715 the Sun King had died after a reign of 72 years, and he had been replaced by his five-year-old great-grandson, Louis XV. 1715 was also the year of the Second Peace of Utrecht, which drew a line under the war of the Spanish succession. Now, a couple of episodes ago, I breezily mentioned that the war had ended up in a tie or a draw. And that's more or less true, because even though the French candidate for the Spanish throne, Philip V, who was a grandson of Louis XIV, had remained in situ as the King of Spain, the Spanish had lost territory to Austria and the northern Italian state of Savoy. And the French had suffered serious, some would say, irreparable damage to their economy. Others would point out, though, that France's economic woes were temporary, particularly as it would now start to expand its own trading networks and increase or enhance its portfolio of colonies. And so in 1725, France, like much of the rest of Europe, was keeping its head down and enjoying a bit of peace and quiet. And that would be pretty much the case until... 1733, when the French, along with most of the other European powers, including Russia, 
would be dragged into the war of the Polish succession. And then in 1740, they'd all be at it again in the war of the Austrian succession. But all of that's for the future. For the time being, let's turn our attention to the patchwork quilt of political entities and modern-day languages and cultures that sprawled across Central Europe, the Holy Roman Empire. In 1725, Habsburg Austria was still its most important player, and Charles VI, who, remember, was brother-in-law to the late Alexei Petrovich Romanov, was still the Holy Roman Emperor. Charles had been a happy-ish man at the end of the War of the Spanish Succession. Okay, the kings of France and Spain were both from the House of Bourbon, but as part of the Peace of Utrecht, the Habsburgs had obtained territories in Italy and had also been awarded pretty much all of modern-day Belgium and Luxembourg. In 1716, Charles had turned his attention southwards, and as we saw in the section on the Ottoman Empire, had managed with his Venetian allies to not only stop Turkish attempts to regain the Balkan territories that they had lost in 1699, but also gain even more territory for both Austria and Venice. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Okay, next up we've got Denmark. Well, when I say Denmark, I mean the Kingdom of Denmark, which at the time was made up of Denmark, obviously, but also Norway. Iceland, the Faroe Islands, and Greenland. Frederick IV, the King of Denmark, and I promise you that's the last Frederick I'll be mentioning in this episode, was also a happy man, because after the Great Northern War, his neighbour Sweden had got its comeuppance, and this had allowed Denmark to expand its trading networks, develop and refine economically and culturally, and become top dog in Scandinavia. A country that had been one of Europe's top dogs or success stories during the 17th century, the Netherlands or the Dutch Republic, would start to see a reversal of its fortunes during the 18th. In fact, much of the 17th century had represented a kind of Dutch golden age, with everything that they touched somehow turning to gold, even tulips. In the 1600s, the Dutch Empire had expanded to become one of the world's foremost, if not the foremost seafaring and economic powerhouses, and its scientists, artists, artisans and armed forces were renowned for their organisation, efficiency and skill. No wonder then that Peter the Great had spent so much time there during his first European sojourn. By 1650, the Dutch had owned and run around 16,000 merchant ships, and through its trading companies, the Dutch East India Company, 
and the Dutch West India Company had established colonies and trading posts all over the world, in North and South America, Eastern Asia, where it was the only European country allowed to trade with Tokugawa Japan, the Indian subcontinent and South Africa. And Dutch sailors had even reached the northern coast of Australia, although they didn't know that at the time. And the fruits of this trade all flowed back to the richest trading centre in the world, Amsterdam. But with all of this money sloshing around, the Dutch Republic became one of the first nations to experience some of the downsides of nascent capitalism, e.g. stock market manipulation, inflation and cycles of boom and bust, which were epitomised by the tulip mania of 1634-1637, which saw contract prices for some bulbs of the recently introduced and fashionable tulip reach extraordinary prices. They were reputed to be around 10 times the annual wage of a skilled artisan at its peak. Only to then crash, leading to the financial ruin of most who had invested. From around 1672, though, things had generally started to go downhill. Militarily, the Dutch were invaded and were very nearly occupied by French and Holy Roman Empire forces, and economically, competition from the other growing powers in the region was starting to negatively impact the bottom line. And so by 1725, and although still relatively well off, the Netherlands went into a state of general steady decline that would last throughout most of the 18th century. So who were those other growing powers? Well, as we've talked, we've talked about one of them, France, and the other was the Kingdom of Great Britain. Hang on a minute, though. The Kingdom of Great Britain? What was that? And when had that happened? OK, so after the childless Queen Elizabeth I of England had died back in 1603, James VI of Scotland became king of both countries. But, and this is an important point, there was no political union, and so each of the two nations remained as a separate political entity with its own legislature. Incidentally, James also became King of Ireland, which would remain in effect as a client state of England, and Wales, which was politically tied to England. This situation remained in place throughout the 17th century, with all subsequent monarchs, Charles I, Charles II, James II, William and Mary, and finally Queen Anne, reigning over England and Wales, and Scotland and Ireland. In 1707, however, this all changed with the Act of Union, which, for a couple of reasons that I haven't got time to go into detail on, but which were mainly related to the state of the Scottish economy, merged both England and Scotland into one political entity, the Kingdom of Great Britain, or in everyday parlance, just Great Britain. Queen Anne had died in 1714 and her replacement was the Hanoverian George I, and in 1725 he was still on the throne and governing his kingdom via his chief, or Prime Minister, Sir Robert Walpole. Walpole's approach or strategy was to keep Great Britain out of European conflicts, and concentrate on the economy, wars cost money, and lives, note the priority there, and Walpole's maxim, as far as the continent was concerned, was to let sleeping dogs lie. George's Scottish subjects were less enamoured with their new German Protestant king, and many of the Highland Scots supported the claim 
of the Catholic James Stuart, son of James II, who would subsequently be referred to as the Old Pretender, and he made several unsuccessful attempts to try and win the Crown of Scotland, most notably in 1715. During the 18th century, Great Britain's own nascent empire would continue to grow, and gradually its own East India Company would expand until by the mid-1700s it was responsible for transacting half of the world's trade and practically ran large swathes of the Indian subcontinent as its own private enterprise. OK, still with me? Just three more European countries to go. And we'll start with Spain, where since the Peace of Utrecht, the Habsburgs are officially out and the Bourbons are officially in. In 1717, though, King Philip V had decided that he wasn't happy with the fact that he'd had to hand over territory to the Habsburgs and Spanish troops invaded Sardinia and Sicily. The Holy Roman Emperor, Charles VI, who had his hands full with the Ottomans, quickly spun up an alliance with some rather odd bedfellows, Great Britain, the Netherlands and France, and after various campaigns in and around the Mediterranean, by 1719 the Spanish had been de defeated and a new peace treaty was signed in 1720. Philip wasn't too worried, though. Spain still had a massive empire of its own, with colonies in North and South America, Africa and Asia, and its economy was in fairly good shape. Portugal was doing even better. Its golden age of discovery was over, but by the early part of the 18th century, its economy was flourishing, due to the vast amounts of gold and other precious minerals that were flowing east across the Atlantic from its largest colonial holding, Brazil. But like so many of the other countries in Europe, just a tiny amount of this wealth was dripping down to the poor, and so large swathes of the population decided that if Brazil or its riches wouldn't come to them, then they would go to Brazil. But so many people were leaving to travel west that the government, worried about the impact on food production in Portugal and the influx of cheap labour into Brazil, unbalancing the slave-based economy there, stepped in and made emigration to Brazil illegal. OK, our final destination point or country on our swing through Europe in 1725 wasn't actually a country at all, but instead was a collection of political entities united mostly by variants of a common language that occupied the Italian peninsula. Dominating the south was the Habsburg-run kingdom of the two Sicilies. Straddling the middle were the Papal States and the Duchy of Tuscany, and holding sway in the north were the Republic of Venice and the Duchies of Milan and Savoy. By the early 1700s, though, all were being impacted by a general economic stagnation. The Renaissance and the days of the Italian banking system ruling the roost were in the past, but there was one other reason for this downturn, something bigger, which we'll briefly ex explore now by casting our gaze across the Atlantic. In 1725, the vast majority of Central and Southern America, and indeed most of Southern and Western North America, was occupied and run by the Spanish. The notable exceptions to this were Brazil, which was dominated by the Portuguese, and northern and eastern North America, which were dominated by the French, and British, plus the Dutch, the Swedes and the Danes, had at one point or another 
got their hands on smaller settlements, notably in the Caribbean. Initially, these European powers, and we're mainly talking about the Spanish and Portuguese here, enslaved the local Native American inhabitants, converted them to Christianity, set them to work in mines and plantations, and then shipped back what they produced, especially gold and silver, back to the motherland. However, the indigenous peoples of the Americas had no resistance to a whole host of infectious diseases, smallpox, influenza, measles and typhus in the main, and they died in their droves. The Portuguese, who also had colonies in West Africa, then hit upon the idea of replacing their diminishing indigenous workforce with African slaves, and before long the Spanish, British, French and other Western European nations were in on the sordid act and reaping the spoils. The other European nations, those that were either too far away from the Atlantic or that didn't have a significant naval presence, Russia, Austria, those Italian states and Prussia for example, were therefore effectively excluded from the slave trade and the resultant financial dividends. However, not all of these European colonies in the Americas, particularly those in present-day Canada and the US, were involved in nor profited directly from the slave trade, and many of the Europeans who went west did so either to escape religious persecution or to simply find a better life. It's estimated that during an almost 400-year period, over 12 million West Africans, yep, 12 million, were transported to the Americas. And transported, as we all know, meant being crammed into dark wooden ships for weeks on end like cattle, and then when they reached the other side, being worked for as long as they were useful in the most wretched and unimaginable conditions. And the great irony here was that during the 18th century, when the slaves, slave trade would start to hit industrial proportions, Western Europe was undergoing a scientific and philosophical revolution that we now refer to as the Enlightenment. Let's just leave that to sink in for a few seconds. The slave trade, albeit in 1725 on a lesser scale than that in Western Africa, was also being practiced along the eastern coast, and here the chief instigator was Oman, which had spread its reach from its southern Arabian heartland across to the Horn of Africa in the north and down to Zanzibar in the south. The rest of the African continent was made up of various independent settlements, notably Ethiopia in the north, Morocco in the northwest, and the forerunners of Congo and Angola along the midwestern coast. And apart from the slave ports, there were two other foreign territories, the Ottoman Empire, which had a long strip stretching across the north coast, and the Dutch, who had Cape Colony at the southern tip. Other notable states in Asia included Mughal India, but during the 18th century they were going to be losing chunks of their territory to the British East India Company, and there were also the Dutch-run East Indies in present-day Indonesia. And to finish off, we've got two massive continents that are not yet on the European maps, Australasia and Antarctica. OK, I think we'll leave things there for this week. Next time, which will be next week, 
I'll be doing that long promised episode on the Cossacks and the Tartars, and then after that we'll be back to the chronological narrative and seeing how Russia will adapt, or not, to this brave and enlightened new world. Okay, so until then, dear listeners, and as always, look after yourselves, and I'll be back to speak to you all soon.